Walker's Multiply DM2 uh, seminar on September 18th to 20th. That's two weeks from this Thursday. It will start at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and it will go um, until about 9.30 that night, and then all day. Anybody here know the schedule? Jeff's not here. Um, the schedule on Friday is about 8.30 to 9 to 9. 9 to 9, 9, to 9 on, Thursday, on Friday and and. 99 on Saturday. Great. Good. I'm glad somebody around here knows the schedule. Okay, and that is going to be covering the first half of the life of Christ, so that means that next year we'll probably be doing the second half of the life of Christ. And in light of the study that we're doing on Sunday morning in Matthew, that's going to be a really good uh, um, session to attend in order to get that whole overview on the on the life of Christ, which is a life of Christ and a gospel study are two different things. You put all the gospels together, and that gives you a full picture of the life of Christ as opposed to drilling down on one gospel. So September 18th to 20th, then plan ahead. Saturday, October the 18th, we'll be having our annual church picnic. And then on Sunday, that same weekend, on Sunday night, at 6.30, we'll be hosting an event here with the uh, CEO of GENSA. That's the Jewish Institute for National Security Affairs, uh, Dr. Michael McCoskey. And uh, you don't want to miss that. That will be a great update on whatever is going on in the Middle East. And it will change many times between now, now and then, as I'm telling the folks going on the uh, Israel trip. Whatever is happening today... Just think, my big, my major concern on the Israel trip back at the 1st of May, which was, what, three months ago, four months ago, was that uh, with this new alliance between Fatah and Hamas, that we wouldn't be able to go into uh, the West Bank to go to a lot of the sites there on the day I was planning it. Now, Hamas, I mean, Fatah hates Hamas. So you see, a whole lifetime can transpire in just a short time over there, so you never know exactly uh, what will happen around the corner. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. This is the opportunity that you have to uh, to take advantage of to make sure that you are in fellowship with God. In silent prayer, you can confess any known sins to him. 1 John 1.9 tells us that we are instantly cleansed and forgiven and cleansed of all unrighteousness. And so after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, it's such a privilege to come before your throne of grace because Jesus Christ has paved the way, opened the door, removed the veil, that we may have immediate access to your grace because of his work on the cross. Father, we thank you for our salvation that is complete in Christ and that all we need to do is to trust in you and we have eternal life, trusting in Christ, work on the cross where he paid for our sins. 
Now, Father, as we continue our study of the Scriptures, understanding your plan and purposes in human history, we pray that you might help us to understand these things and to see that though things may seem chaotic around us, things may seem random, nevertheless, you are in control and you are working history toward an ultimate goal and ultimate purpose. We pray that you would help us to understand the things we're studying this evening, to gain a greater understanding of future things. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Okay, we're continuing tonight in our study on the rapture, and we've looked at this last last time in terms of some key uh, key verses, and we'll continue to, to look at some key verses this evening and then move on beyond that, and we may or may not get into the next uh, uh, dispensation, which is the tribulation. Here, as a reminder, is a chart of the ages. This is God's plan that we know from Revelation, from God's Word, that is, not the book of Revelation, but from God's uh, revealed truth. There are two basic ages in the Old Testament period, as seen at the top, the age of the Gentiles from Adam to Abraham, the age of the Jews from Abraham to the cross, and since then we are in the age of the church, the church age. In the Old Testament, age of the Gentiles, that was subdivided into three dispensations or administrations of God. From creation to the fall was the age of perfect environment or the dispensation of perfect environment, rather. The second dispensation, the dispensation of of human conscience, uh, from Adam to the flood, and then from the flood to the to the Tower of Babel, you have uh, the uh, dispensation of human government. Uh, the failure of the Tower of Babel uh, led God to choose to work through one person, Abraham. This is the shift, major shift that takes place all history since the giving of the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12 is shaped by that covenant. The Jewish people, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, are the centerpiece of history. They are the focal point of God's plan, even during the time when they are uh, apart from God. In the Old Testament, there were many times when Israel was under divine discipline, when they were apostate, when they were in complete disobedience to God. Nevertheless, they were still at the center of God's plan. They're still at the center of God's plan today, even though the, the group that God is working with today is the church age in which Jewishness or Gentileness are no longer a significant factor in the spiritual life. That will change at the end of the church age, which is signified by the arrow pointed up. Uh, that is the rapture of the church, which will then be followed by the tribulation. So I started a couple of weeks ago looking at the question of why I believe in a pre-trib rapture. This is an important question. I never went through an oral exam at Dallas Seminary where I wasn't asked a question, why do you believe in a pre-trib rapture? It was on about three or four different times I had oral exams, either in my master's work or, or doctoral work, and that was always one of the questions. Why do we believe in a pre-tribulation rapture? Now, to answer this, we have to basically answer two questions. What is the rapture and when is the rapture? We'll complete the answer to the first question uh, this evening, probably get into a good bit of the second question, the answer to the second question as we go along. Uh, 
So the first question, what is the rapture? And we defined it this way. The rapture is the translation of all living believers from the earth at the end of the church age, immediately following the resurrection of all dead church age believers. The rapture occurs before the tribulation begins. Jesus Christ, we're told in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18, will at some point unknown in the future descend from heaven in the clouds, not to the earth, but in the clouds, and according to 1 Thessalonians chapter uh, 4, verse 16, there will be three simultaneous events. There will be a shout, there will be a cry from the archangel, and the trumpet of God will blast, and then the dead in Christ rise first. That term there is important. That verb is resurrection. It is not rapture. The next verb relates to the rapture. And then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together. That's the word in the Greek harpazo. It was translated into Latin with a uh, the verb rapio. And rapio means rapture. It means to take something up, to snatch it away. And it is a future, uh, future indicative of that, that verb. So, uh, that's where you find the word in scripture. This is, uh, this slide, harpazo, means to be caught up. It would refer to a thief, perhaps, coming into the house and stealing something. It's unannounced. It's a surprise. It's something that's snatched. Uh, it, sometimes it can imply force. Uh, so that is the word that's used there. That's where we get the word, uh, rapture. The key passage we looked at was 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 18. And I pointed out, look at verse 18 at the bottom. Paul concludes this by saying, therefore, comfort one another with these words. I think it's important because you get so many people who get really wrapped around the axle on prophetic things. And they want to know, well, when is Jesus coming back? And, and aren't these the signs of the times? Look around us right now. The world is in chaos today. We have the rise of China and China's power uh, threatening Japan over some ter- territories in the Pacific Ocean. We have uh, we have Russia threatening Ukraine, and and every day we're reading about new forces and new threats uh, on Ukraine. We've just gone through a 50-day uh, war with Gaza in Israel. We had the rise of ISIS. We have various. Uh, threats to the security of the United States by uh, people who claim to be associated with ISIS down in, uh, along the Texas border. All kinds of crazy things are going on, not to mention just the normal uh, craziness that we see in the world with crime and with war and with poverty and all of these other things. And so the, when the Bible teaches prophecy and teaches us about God's plan for the future, its purpose is always to give comfort. Even in the Old Testament, when you look at books like Daniel and Jeremiah, it, the, these an, announcements from God that give future details are all designed to give comfort to God's people that even though they may be uh, taken out of the land, that Israel was taken out of the land, nevertheless God would bring them back to the land. God would be faithful to them. God would be faithful to his promises. God would take care of them. And so it's always couched within the language of comfort. In First Thess 4.13, we read that uh, Paul says, We don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. That is, those who have, have uh, died in Christ. Now, sleep is really a euphemism. 
used in Scripture to apply to believers who have died physically doesn't mean soul sleep, which is a doctrine that Jehovah's Witness teaches. It means that they are... Um, they have died physically. They've gone to be with the Lord, face-to-face with the Lord. There's another category of those who are asleep in Jesus, and they're usually on the back row, and every now and then they snore. So that's our first main passage. Second main passage is out of John 14, uh, 1 through 3, which I looked at or began to look at last time, where Jesus is talking to his disciples in the upper room, The night before he goes to the cross, it's very important to understand that context. Jesus has just observed what is known as the Last Supper. The Last Supper was a Seder meal, a Passover meal, the night before Passover, and it was later that night that Jesus is going to be arrested uh, by, by the Roman soldiers. He's going to be taken through a series of six different trials, at the end of which he will be uh, beaten mercilessly by the Roman soldiers, and then he will be uh, horribly crucified upon a cross uh, just outside the walls of Jerusalem at a place called Golgotha in Hebrew, meaning the place of the skull. Uh, there he would die for our sins. He would pay the penalty for our sins as God uh, poured out our sins upon him from 12 noon until 3 p.m. So this is the night before. Jesus is giving his last parting instructions to his disciples, and it is during this time that he is telling them what the uh, what is going to take place after the crucifixion. Up until this point, we've been still in the age of Israel. The Mosaic Law has still been effective, but the Mosaic Law is going to come to an end at the cross the next day, and then God is going to usher in a new era, a new dispensation that will begin 50 days later on the day of Pentecost. Pentecost, that penti at the beginning means 50. It's 50 days after uh, Passover. And so the disciples are beginning to realize that there's uh, something amiss, and they're not really focused on the crucifixion. They, they don't seem to have really understood that Jesus was, was going to die, but they're concerned about the fact that he's announced that he's leaving them, and so they want to know, especially Peter, who's the outspoken one, uh, where he is going. And so at the end of, of um, chapter 13... Uh, Peter is asking him, well, where are you going and how can we go there? And so Jesus answered and said, let not your heart be troubled. So again, just like Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4, Jesus is comforting them. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me and my Father's house are many mansions or many dwelling places as the New King James translates it, which is more accurate. If it were not so, I would have told you For I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself, that where I am you may be also. Now, I went through this last time. I think this is really important to remember. This was an observation by a Mennonite commentator on Revelation by the name of J.B. Smith who noted that there were eight significant parallels between John 14, 1 through 3, and 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, showing that they're talking about the same kind of thing. And that if if they're talking about a pre-tribulation rapture, then this would be quite different from talking about the second coming. In the second coming, Jesus comes to the earth. Jesus comes to judge the earth and to rescue Israel from the uh, judgments of the tribulation. 
at the rapture, Jesus comes to take his own with him back to heaven. That's the thrust of uh, John 14, 1 through 3. Jesus is talking about the fact that he's going to heaven where he came from and that in his Father's house, which is in heaven, are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to there to prepare a place for you that where I am, i.e. in heaven, uh, you may be there also. So he's talking about a heavenly destiny. He's not taking talking about the church coming with him, um, just being being raptured at the end of the tribulation, sort of meeting him halfway up in the air and then coming right back down where they would stay on the earth. He's talking about something very, very different. And when, when uh, uh, J.B. Smith took the language, the vocabulary of John 14, 1 through 3, and compared it to the second coming passage of Revelation 19, 11 to 12, there weren't any significant similarities. When he took 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, and compared that vocabulary to Revelation 19, 11, and 12, there were no significant similarities. But when he compared Revelation, I mean, when he compared John 14, 1 through 3, and 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18 together, there were these eight striking similarities. And so they, and what's also interesting, and the last point, is that these, each of these items that he noted occur in the same order in each of these passages. So, first of all, both passages focus on comfort. Jesus says, let your, let not your heart be troubled. Paul says that, that, uh, that begins in 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter uh, 4, verse 13, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep that you might grieve as those who have no hope. Secondly, both passages emphasize belief in Christ is the key issue. In 1 Thessalonians 4.14, Paul says, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And John 14.1, in the second part, he says, believe in God, believe also in me. Third similarity, both passages focus on God the Father and Jesus the Son. In John 14.1, he mentions God. In John 14.2, the Father. And then he talks, uses his uh, he mentions God first, believe in God. Then he mentions himself second in John 14.1, believe also in me. So that order is the same in in John first uh, says four fourteen through fifteen. He talks about uh, God bringing with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. So he talks about God and Jesus. So there's a focus on both persons of the Trinity. Fourth, both passages instruct their audience. Instruct their audiences. In John 14, 2, Jesus says, I told you. If it were not so, he says, I would have told you. Uh, in John, in 1 Thess 4, 15, Paul says, I say to you. Then fifth, the return of Jesus is next mentioned in both passages. And, and sixth, in, in the Gospel of John, Jesus says he will receive them. I will uh, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go in verse 3 and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. When Paul states it, he says, Jesus comes in the clouds and believers will be caught up to be with him in the clouds and be with him forever. The destiny of believers, seventh, the destiny of believers in John fourteen three is to myself and to him in First Thess 4, 17. And then eighth, in both passages, believers will continue to be with the Lord. Now, I ran through that real fast because we'd covered it last time. But these it's striking that there are these similarities. So that helps us understand that John 14, uh, 1 through 3, is clearly a rapture uh, passages. 
In First Thess 4.15, Paul says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. That is, he's indicating that Jesus has taught about this. Where did he teach about it? Here in John 14, 1 through 3. Now, what the passage in John 14, 3 clearly states is that Jesus is going to heaven. He's going to this destiny from whence he came. He was with the Father in heaven. Now he's going to go back to the Father in heaven. He's going to do something, prepare something in heaven and the abode of God in heaven, and then he's going to come for us and take us to that place. Now, it's important to understand that this fits with other passages of Scripture in that uh, in John uh, Acts 1.11, uh, we see Jesus ascending to heaven after he ascends uh, two angels appeared to the disciples and said, Why are you looking into the sky, men of Galilee? This Jesus who's been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into, into heaven. And so that, that's the same. So Jesus is going to heaven to prepare places for us. And so this helps us uh, answer the two uh, previous questions, the two questions related to uh, where Jesus is going and what he is doing there. He's going to heaven, and he is going to a place called the, his father's house, which refers to, um, uh, which is a, an allusion to uh, the father's throne, as, as, uh, which is where he goes to be seated at the right hand of the father, according to Psalm 110.1 as well as Acts 2.33-35 and Revelation 3.21. Now, he goes there to prepare a dwelling places. Now, the old King James translated this mansions, and that has entered into the warp and woof of evangelical Christianity. People think there are hymns that are written about their heavenly mansions, and all of this is due to probably a failure on the part of William Tyndale when he translated the Latin word mansionis into English as mansion because the English word mansion comes to indicate some sort of palatial dwelling, but that's not part of the meaning of the Latin word mansionis, which is in the uh, Latin Vulgate. It is, it's the term that translates a Greek word, mone, as I have at the bottom of the screen, which is related to the verb meno. Remember, we talked about that a lot in John 15. Jesus said, abide in me. If you abide in me, I will abide in you. If you abide in my word, that word abide means to remain or to stay. It's the verb meno. The noun form is mone. It means a place to stay a place to remain, and it came to refer to a dwelling place. It came to refer to a temporary dwelling place, such as an inn, something probably a little nicer than, uh, uh, you know, some of the inns that are advertised on TV that keep the light on for us, but uh, it could refer to an apartment. It could refer to a uh, home. It's just a broad term. It's not a technical term. It's used only one other time in the New Testament, interestingly enough, in this same passage, but in the next chapter, in John chapter 14, where it talks about the indwelling abode of the Father and the Son in the individual believer. So that's quite a significant different context 
from the one that, that we're looking at. So it's not some fancy palatial man. I know that's going to disappoint a lot of people who have thought that, that they have a, a place to go. Uh, and they know exactly what it's going to look like. This, it, it's really a temporary place. It's, it's, and it's not temporary in the sense that it's some shack. It's, it's temporary in that that's not our permanent abode. Our permanent abode is going to be in the New Jerusalem. And so this is, he's preparing a temporary abode because that's not where we're ultimately going to end up. We come back with the Lord at the end of the tribulation period, and then we will rule and reign with him. Now the church, the church is composed and our destiny is considered heavenly as opposed to earthly, but that is distinguishing the fact that we don't have a, an, a earthly reward like the Israelites do in terms of the land that God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Ours is related to our spiritual relationship to Jesus Christ. And so he's going to prepare this uh, uh, dwelling place for us and it's clear that this is something in, in the future. He says, I will come again. It's translated as a future sense. It's really a present tense verb. There is a sense in which the present tense is used to refer to future things because they're so certain they're referred to as if they are present. So he says, I'm coming again. I am coming again. And it indicates that this is a, a future time. So this clearly speaks of Jesus' uh, departure from the earth to the heavenly abode of God, and there he prepares uh, for the arrival of the church. And he has a temporary abode for us because fitting in the Jewish marriage ceremony, the Jewish betrothal ceremony, that the uh, bridegroom would provide a temporary place for the bride to stay prior to the uh, marriage feast. And we know from Scripture that the marriage feast takes place when Jesus returns at the beginning of the millennial kingdom. That's when that fits. So it fits the pattern of uh, Jewish wedding customs. Jesus will return to the earth as described in Revelation 19.7, and he will be bringing his bride with him to the uh, wedding feast. It is very different from the other scenarios that, that we will look at. Okay, the third verse that indicates and emphasizes the coming of, of Christ at the rapture is Philippians chapter 3, verse 11. Philippians chapter 3, verse 11. I wish I had time to go through the entire context because this is one of the great contexts for the emphasis on um, possession of Christ's righteousness and not our own righteousness. As Paul says in, in verses 8 and 9, I count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. That's a pretty bland word for the Greek. The Greek word is skubala, which refers to manure. So he refers to everything uh, loss. He suffered the loss of all things and count everything as manure, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, 
the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. If by any means, he says in verse verse 11, and, and that really has more the sense of in order that, uh, which is how I've translated it in the slide. It's more of a, of a nuance. He's not saying if, maybe I will, maybe I won't. He is saying in order that I will attain to the out-resurrection, ex-anastasis. Anastasis would just be resurrection. So you think of the resurrection of the dead uh, as, as a broad term. Everybody from all the ages is resurrected, but the church is a subset that is, as we'll see in our passage in 1 Corinthians 15, is the second group that is resurrected. Jesus is the first fruits, the church next, and then we're going to have at the end of the tribulation period the rapture of Old Testament, I mean the uh, resurrection of Old Testament saints and tribulation martyrs, and then there is a, another general resurrection at the end of the millennial kingdom. So Paul is talking about something specific here, which is something that is out from the the entirety of all of the resurrections, and so that is an allusion to the rapture. In Titus 2.13, another important passage, it tells us that we're looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of the, our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. Now, this is a very important passage for a number of reasons. First of all, it connects God and Savior together. It's a clear passage on the deity of Christ, that Jesus Christ is both God and Savior. A second thing that we're really focusing on here is that this coming uh, of Christ, the appearing of Christ, and it uses the word epiphania here, which is not a, a um, which is just a general word for appearance. But what this tells us in terms of prophetic things is that the next thing that we're looking for is the appearance of Jesus. Now, when you look at the panorama of prophecy and revelation, you know that there are going to be a number of things that happen. There's going to be the rise of the prince who is to come, who is called the Antichrist, and he's going to sign a a treaty with Israel according to uh, Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 and following. He signs that peace treaty. That's the beginning of the last seven-year period in, in the history that God has for Israel's people. It's a time period, we'll get into this either later tonight or next week, that we refer to as the tribulation period. It's that last seven-year period that ends with the campaign of Armageddon. So we have all these things that happen after that. After that, that the Antichrist signs a peace treaty, there's going to be <clears throat> war upon the earth. There are going to be various geophysical disasters that take place. There's going to be a uh, an enormous uh, meteor shower or, or uh, something of that nature that is going to you know, rain stones upon the earth and uh, all of these different things that happen. So if if Jesus doesn't come back in any way, shape, or form until the end of the tribulation then we wouldn't be looking for his return to be next. We would be looking for the Antichrist. 
And that's what you find a lot of people do. They're, they, they speculate in the Midnight Globe or the Midnight Sun or National whatever, Inquirer, and all these other things. Are we, is so-and-so the Antichrist? Has the Antichrist been born? All of these different things. Well, as Christians who properly understand the Bible, we're not looking for the Antichrist. We're looking for Jesus Christ. The next thing that's going to happen is going to be the rapture. The Antichrist does not become known. He's not revealed until after the rapture of the church. Now, you and I may know him. He might be your next-door neighbor. He may be somebody that you think is very wonderful in politics today. He may be somebody who's European. He may not even be American. Who knows who he is? We may know him. He may be on the scene internationally as a politician or government leader or in some country somewhere, but he's not going to be identified as the Antichrist until after the rapture has taken place. And so no one, none of us will ever know who the Antichrist is until after the rapture has taken place. So the importance of Titus 2.13 is that it tells us we're not looking for any of these other signs of the times that Jesus talked about because all of those so-called signs of the times mentioned in Matthew 24 and the things that occur between Revelation 4 and Revelation 20 uh, are all come all take place after the rapture. So we're looking for the next thing that's going to happen in God's prophetic timetable. And as things tick tock, tick tock down the down the line, the next thing that is going to occur that's prophetically significant for us, not for Israel. Some things are happening as that are stage setting for what will take place after the rapture, I believe. But the next thing that we know for sure that happens is going to be the rapture of the church. That takes us to our uh, next passage, Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. Philippians 3.20, where Paul says, For our citizenship is in heaven. We have a citizenship. That doesn't mean that you don't have earthly responsibilities or that you gave up your earthly citizenship responsibilities at all. How do we know that? Because Every time Paul got threatened a certain way by Roman authorities, he pulled out his citizenship papers. He went to his citizenship argument. I'm a Roman citizen. You can't whip me because I'm a Roman citizen, and that's illegal. So Paul isn't saying here that that we don't have our earthly citizenship anymore, but that's not the most significant citizenship. The most significant and the eternal one as church-age believers is that our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior. See, we wait for the Savior who will come from heaven. Why? John 14, he's gone to heaven in order to prepare a place for us. And so we're waiting for him, according to what the angel said in Acts 1.11, to come back to the earth. We're waiting for our Savior to return, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the last passage that we're going to look at, that's another significant passage. I think three, the three most significant passages are 1 Thess 4, 13-18, John 14.1-3, and then this passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 through 53. We'll look at, I've got these on the board. There's 51 to 53, but we'll look at these 
uh, as we lead into this. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15 is one of those great chapters in Scripture that people need to understand. It is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that Paul is giving an in-depth defense of the doctrine of physical bodily resurrection. Think about Jesus' resurrection from the dead. I always use this example somewhat facetiously. When Jesus was raised from the dead, when, when Mary and Martha came the next day and Peter and John came and they went into the tomb, the grave clothes were laid out in perfect order. There was the, the, the main body of the, of the grave clothes, and then there was a gap for the neck, and then there was the scarf which covered his face. And so it's as if his physical body dematerialized and then rematerialized as a new resurrection body, a non-corporeal body. But his resurrection body had a direct connection to his corporeal human body. He didn't just get another body that had no connection with his previous body. So I've always wondered about this. When people get transplants, you know, you die and you give a cornea transplant or you give a heart transplant or or whatever, your all your organs go to somebody else. If the rapture were to occur, do you get all those back? People losing their heart all of a sudden, you know. Lighten up a little bit. We've got to <laughs> laugh about these things. We don't know, but there is this physical connection, and that's what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, is that this is a physical bodily resurrection, and there's a direct connection between that body that we will have, that resurrection body we'll have in the future, and our present corporeal body. It's going to be different. So if you're too skinny, you're not going to be too skinny. If you're too fat, you're not going to be too fat. If you're old, you're going to be young again. If you're still a baby, you're going to uh, be mature. But there's a connection between the two, and this is what Paul is talking about. And this is grounded, his whole argument is grounded upon, upon Jesus' physical bodily resurrection, and he gives the evidence and witnesses for that in the first 11 verses. In verses 12 to 34, he explains that without Christ's physical bodily resurrection from the dead, Christianity would have no foundation. He basically says if Jesus didn't physically bodily, get physically bodily raised from the dead, then we have no hope and we are hopeless people. We're believing in a myth because our hope is that there is victory over death and Jesus is the one who established that victory over death. He was the first fruits, the first in order. He uses that term first fruits uh, from the uh, Old Testament analogy that the very first of the harvest would be given to God as a as an offering to God. So it also implies that it's the first, it's the best, and that there will be much more to follow. So if Christ is the first fruits, that implies that there are going to be subsequent, uh, subsequent resurrections. And so we see that consistent with what Jesus taught in John 14, 2 through 3, he is raised from the dead first, he will go to heaven, and then he will return for those who, re, who compose the church. And these are described as those who are Christ's at his uh, Christ at his coming. This is here in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 23. 
but each one in his own order. And he uses a Greek word there for order that indicates like rankings as in the military. If you watch a, a military parade, it will be led off by diff- one unit followed by another unit followed by another unit. And so there, there's going to be an order in which the resurrection takes place. It's not just one massive resurrection and everybody goes up at the same time. And if you look at the way this is described, there are thousands of years in between these these illustrated resurrections. First of all, we have Christ the first fruits. This took place in approximately April of AD 33. And then we have afterward those who are Christ at his coming. Well, that refers to church-age believers. When Christ comes at the rapture, how much time does there is there that's gone by from Christ's resurrection to the rapture? Well, at least almost 2,000 years at this point. Then comes the end when Christ delivers the kingdom uh, to God the Father. Now, that occurs at the end of the millennial kingdom. So between the resurrection of the church and the millennial and in the millennial kingdom, at least a thousand years or a little more than a thousand years takes place. So there are many different groups that are resurrected: first Christ, second the church, then the Old Testament saints and tribulation martyrs at the end of the tribulation, and then there'll be a general resurrection at the end of the millennial kingdom. So this, he's just giving a, a broad outline here indicating that there are these distinct groups that will be resurrected, that these lengthy time periods take place uh, between the resurrection, and that at the very end, um, that comes at the end of the millennial kingdom after the rapture, after Daniel's 70th week, and after the 1,000-year reign of Christ upon the earth. So then he answers the question of uh, related to how the dead are are raised, and this is covered in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 35 and following, until he gets to the point where he talks about how this happens, how this takes place. And this is really important. I had the opportunity to drill down on this a few years ago, and I realized that this is saying something a lot more than what appears on the surface. There are, even today, even some uh, pre-trib dispensationalists who think that this is just a general statement for the, rapture, uh, for the resurrection uh, in the future and that this is not talking about the rapture, but this is talking about the end of the tribulation period, even though they're pre-trib rapture, uh, they believe in a pre-trib rapture. But I want you to point out the first, the first clause. He says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. That tells us right away that what he is talking about here is something that has never previously been revealed. Now, we we studied this term mystery, the Greek word mysterion, in in the New Testament, and it doesn't refer to to something that you're uh, like a riddle that you're trying to find the answer to, discovering uh, somebody who committed a crime like we think of in terms of mystery novels or or murder mystery television shows or films of that nature. It talks about something that is a previously unrevealed truth. Now, in the Old Testament period, follow me on this, in the Old Testament period, there was never any prediction of the church or the church age. It was a mystery. 
And, and the spiritual life of the believer in the church age was not revealed in the Old Testament. And part of the re- one of the reasons for that is because Jesus was going to come and he was going to give it, the, the Jews an offer of the kingdom and it, it, it had to be a legitimate offer of the kingdom. If he had revealed that, that there was going to be another people of God following that, then that would have made it clear that, hey, you guys are going to reject the kingdom. So, so in order to make it a really fair offer, there's no indication of what's going to happen afterwards given in the Old Testament. The prophecy goes up to the crucifixion and stops until we get into end times prophecy. There's a gap there that becomes evident when you study, study the word. So this is talking about something that wasn't revealed in the Old Testament because it doesn't relate to Israel. It relates to the church. Now, anything that happens during the tribulation period is happening during the time of Daniel's 70th week. That relates to Israel. We're going to cover that remarkable prophecy in the next, probably in about two weeks. We'll wait till we get there, but most of you have gone through that with me. When Daniel gives that prophecy, he's laying out the chronology of God's plan for Israel. But the, but the, uh, Antichrist, I mean, excuse me, the Messiah is cut off or killed at the end of the 483rd week. That leaves one seven-year period to go between 483 and 490. 490 years were decreed for Israel. So at the end of 483 years, that um, the Messiah was cut off. Then there's a pause. God hit the pause button on the plan for Israel, and he hits the go button after the rapture. So there's been this pause for almost 2,000 years now. Now, so this mystery applies to the church. And so it's not talking about just general resurrection. That was clear in the Old Testament. In Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, it's very clear that Daniel talks about the fact that there will be a future resurrection. So the the whole concept of that general resurrection was not a mystery in the Old Testament. It was clearly revealed. So what is being said here has to do not with the general resurrection, but it has to do with something else related, a different resurrection. And so he's giving this as it relates to the church. He says, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed, indicating that he's talking about we as church-age believers. How will this take place? It takes place in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. And the word that's used there indicates just as, as light would, would reflect quickly off of somebody's eye. It, it's, it's quicker than a blink. It's a, some have measured it to be one sixty-fourth of a second. So fast your, your brain can't even register it. It's just going to happen uh, in, a, in a nanosecond, we would say today. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. Now, this is the trumpet for the church age. There are many different trumpets. Some people try to argue that this is the last trumpet in the tribulation period. But the last trumpet in the tribulation period is composed of seven bold judgments. There's three series of judgments given during the tribulation period. The first seven are called the seal judgments. The seventh seal judgment, that seventh seal is opened, and it reveals seven more judgments. And they're called the seven trumpet judgments. When the angel blows the last of the trumpet judgments, the seventh one, this is somewhere near the middle point of the tribulation period. And when he blows that last trumpet, 
It's not to indicate that, that Jesus is coming back. It's to indicate that there are seven more judgments that are called bold judgments. It's not announcing a resurrection at all. So the, the trumpets were used to announce things, and there are last, there would be last trumpets to end different segments of God's plan in history. So this is the last trumpet of the church, day, church age, and the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. So we have the same order that we have in First Thessalonians 4. The dead will rise first, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds, and thus we shall ever be with the Lord. So here we're told this happens in a nanosecond. The dead will raise imperishable, and we, see, he distinguishes we from the dead because he's still thinking he'll be alive when this takes place. That's called the doctrine of the imminency of Scripture. Paul believed that it would take place at any moment. It would happen during his lifetime. Now, that changes as he got older, but he believed that it would still, was still imminent. So the point, simple point that I'm making here is he's got the same order that you have in 1 Thessalonians 4, the dead first, and then those who are alive will be changed. So the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable. Whether you're alive or dead, you've got a perishable, corrupt body, and it must be transformed into that which is imperishable. Uh, the perishable body is described as a mortal body by the parallelism there at the end. The mor- this mortal must put on immortality. So this described, uh, describes the rapture. Now, this sequence of events is the same in all of these passages. First Thess 4, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, John 14, 1 through 3. And we learn that Jesus Christ will return in the clouds, and then we're all caught up to be with him. So now I'm, we're going to shift. We've looked at what is the rapture, and we're going to look at when is the rapture. And Bryce, anybody got any questions? Anything come in? One question? No? No, no questions. Okay. Two questions. What is the rapture and when is the rapture? So let me just go over this chart, help you understand the uh, these four views. The first view is the pre-tribulation rapture, and it's defined as the, that the rapture occurs before, that's the pre prefix, before the tribulation, and it ends the church age. It's not the beginning of the tribulation. It's the end of the church age. Just as the cross was the end of the law, but the church age doesn't begin for 50 days later on the day of Pentecost. The rapture is the end of the, of the church age, and it's the signing of the covenant between the Antichrist and Israel that begins the Daniel 70th week. So it can be charted like this. We have the timeline, church age, tribulation, and millennium. And the pre-tribulation rapture occurs before the tribulation. It ends the church age. That's the pre-trib rapture. We usually shorten long words like tribulation to trib, Thessalonians to Thess. Just catch on to the vocabulary. Okay, then we have the partial rapture view. The partial rapture view is defined that at the rapture, only those faithful, dedicated Christians will be caught up. Carnal Christians, if you're out of fellowship, if you haven't been walking with the Lord, according to this view, you get to stay behind and go through the tribulation. But if you get your act right, you may get raptured at several points throughout the tribulation. 
See, this is really the product of a legalistic mentality because you always have certain Christians who are not comfortable with the fact that some Christians are carnal. Some Christians don't walk with the Lord. They're, they're living in disobedience, so they want to always punish them. They don't understand grace. Now, in this view, you have the timeline. Spiritual Christians are raptured at the beginning of the tribulation, before the tribulation, but carnal Christians get raptured at various times through the tribulation. So it's the partial rapture view. This is a really a minority view. It was more popular for some during the mid-19th century. They also were some who held to a mid-trib rapture view, which is the view that the rapture occurs in the middle of the tribulation, halfway through at the end of the first three-and-a-half-year period, roughly at the same time as the abomination of desolation, and that uh, believers will endure the first half. There's a variant that came out a few years ago called the pre-wrath rapture. In that view, only the last stage, the bold judgments, are called the wrath of God. And so it, Christians won't endure the wrath, the wrath of God. It's, it's really a variant. The same critique, the same problems with mid-trib, basically, there's some differences, I understand that, but just for general sake right now, it's just a modification of the mid-trib view. And this is the idea here, that all believers go up halfway through the tribulation. And then we have the post-trib view. We have... Uh, uh, the, this is a view that the rapture occurs at the end of the tribulation, forcing all believers to endure the entire seven-year period. Now, we've got about seven minutes left, and I always like to do this with my students when I teach in Kiev because sometimes a good visual helps you understand why the rapture has to take place at a certain time, and you don't get it otherwise. So what, what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask for some volunteers Anybody, well, Barb, you just volunteered, and uh, John, you volunteered. I needed one more volunteer. Greg, you volunteered. You guys come down here, and we're going we're gonna to walk through different scenarios of history, see if my cord, we're going to get down here in front, see if my cord's long enough. And we're going to pretend that this is a timeline, and um, we're going we're gonna to go from left to right, so all three of you stand over here. Stand next to each other. Don't don't stand facing me. Stand now, face me this way. This way. Okay. Now this is a timeline. They're in the church age, and we're going to walk through time, and we're going to walk through the tribulation period, and then we're going to have the second coming, and then we're going to walk into the millennial kingdom, and we're going to see what happens according to the two primary views that describe the, the rapture in relation to the, uh, the, the tribulation. Now, the first one is the pre-trib view. This is important. So Barb is going to be a Christian because she's so nice. You know, we're <laughs> just going to, she's got to be, she's going to be the Christian. John and Greg are unbelievers. But after the rapture, John is going to become a Christian. And Greg's just, all through this thing, Greg's just going to go to the lake of fire. He's just absolutely <laughs> reprobate. Okay, so they're going to start walking. We're going to walk, and all of a sudden, oh, the rapture occurs. So Barb goes off to heaven, and these guys keep going. And now John becomes a Christian, and, um, and he goes along, 
And wait a minute, Greg becomes a Christian, uh, John becomes a Christian, and so we're going to come to the end of the tribulation period, and Jesus comes back. And see, John's a reprobate. He's an unbeliever. So he's going to be sent off to judgment. So, you, I mean, Greg, so you're going to go off to judgment. So you go over there to judgment. Okay, now John is a believer. He survived all the judgments of the tribulation, so he is one scarred-up guy. But he is saved. But he's still in his mortal body. He hasn't been resurrected, and he's going to find some lovely woman, and they're going to get married and have lots of kids and repopulate the earth during the millennial kingdom. Okay, so there they go. Okay, now let's go do the other scenario. Same people, same scenario, but this is going to illustrate what happens on a post-trib rapture scenario. Okay, come on, we're walking through the church age, but there's no rapture. So the tribulation begins. Remember, this is illustrating the post-trib rapture view. So the tribulation begins, and now John becomes a believer. So Barb and John are both believers, and Greg here, well, he's still a reprobate. Okay, so they're going to go through the tribulation, and they go to come to the Battle of Armageddon, and Jesus comes back, and they survive. But the rapture occurs as Jesus is coming down. So they get resurrection bodies. Okay, y'all go off there. There's going to be a judgment, and Greg gets sent to Tartarus, torments. So he's gone. Now, who is going to be left with a mortal body to go into the millennial kingdom and repopulate the earth? Absolutely no one. The post-trib view falls apart, not only exegetically and theologically, but in terms of fitting any kind of scenario. It leaves no one to repopulate the earth. So that that will stick with you forever. No matter what else we sing, no matter what else I teach, the one thing you'll always remember is that little illustration. All right, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity uh, to go through these passages dealing with the rapture. It's a great comfort because we know that whether we die or whether we survive to the Lord's coming, what we're looking forward to is not disaster, but we're looking forward to the Lord's return. We're looking for Jesus Christ. We're not focused on signs of the times. We're not focused on all these other things. We're not distracted by those things. We can just focus on our, our mission as believers to make disciples, to teach others, and to grow to spiritual maturity. Father, we pray that you'd help us to understand and assimilate all the things that we're learning about future things in your timeline that we may be encouraged and we may use that to encourage others as well. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.